Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. That's what we're going to be doing starting today. And really running through January, we're going to be looking at a number of our catechism questions. Uh, and they're going to be dealing with the question of why did we need a Redeemer? And who is that Redeemer? It kind of flows out of what we've been talking and singing about uh, here through the Christmas season. But we're going to be uh, taking a look at that. And we're going to begin today, uh, it'll be question 21, but we're going to be looking at the topic of why the God-man. Why did we need the God-man to come and redeem us? And so we'll have two passages of Scripture. Both of them are out of the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And then Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 28, they'll be there in your booklet. You can follow along. I will reference a few other uh, verses. I'll be using the New International Version. So hear now the words of your Lord, your Redeemer. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, we read, now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, many years ago, there was a theologian named Anselm. Uh, he became known as Anselm of Canterbury. He lived from 1033, they think. They're not a, they don't know if he was born in 1033 or 1034. Back then, it's hard to know exactly when someone was born, but they do know he died in 1109. Uh, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England from 1093 to 1109. But he was mainly known for being a great theologian and philosopher. Uh, he was a man who wrote some of the what are now considered classical proofs of God's existence. How would we know that God exists? But perhaps his most important work was one that he wrote in Latin, because that's what scholars did back then, and it was called Cur Deus Homo, which translated as Why the God-Man. 
And in it, Anselm is asking this question of, so we celebrate Christmas. We do this every year. We make a big deal of it. We talk about the incarnation that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a, child, a son and you shall give him the name Jesus because he is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he said, well, why do we need a God-man? What is it about our predicament that requires the God-man? And this is actually what questions 21 to 25 in our catechism uh, kind of cover. And if you're not familiar with a, a catechism, it's just a, it's an old word. It's actually used in the New Testament several times, and it means to hand something down. It's a way of handing the faith down from one spiritual generation to another or like from parents to children. And if you look on our church website, you can see it. There's a link there actually in the discussion guide. And we've got one that both has the questions, but then another one that's got all kinds of verses and study materials that can go with it. And we're going to be looking at that. But so over the next number of weeks, we're going to look at questions 21 to 25 because they're answering this question, why the God man? And so we begin with with uh, question 21 is the first one. What sort of redeemer and mediator is needed to bring us back to God? And the answer is one who is perfectly righteous, truly human, and truly God. And so we're going to spend several weeks kind of unpacking each of those ideas. And so let's dive into our text and we'll kind of talk about what this means. Now, the first thing for us to understand is why we need a redeemer is our great need. Our great need as human beings, which is really behind the Christmas story, is we need a redeemer and a mediator. A redeemer and a mediator. In the Old Testament, this was represented by the priest and supremely by the high priest who would represent us to God. The priest represented human beings before God. Notice in Hebrews chapter 4, the text that we're looking at, uh, the, the writer to Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest. Now he's talking about Jesus there, but notice he says Jesus is the high priest. In verse 15, he says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. Uh, but both of these times he's referring to Jesus as the high priest. And this is because the priests were mediators between the people uh, and God, between sinful people and God. There needs to be a redeemer and a mediator, and, and not just because God is greater than we are, but specifically because we are sinful and God is holy. And because we are sinful and God is holy, we need somebody to be a mediator between us and God. And so in the Old Testament, there were all these priests, and that was then ultimately symbolized by the high priest, the one who came from Aaron's family. And the high priest was the chief mediator between God and sinful humanity. You may remember that there were a number of sacrifices, most importantly, the Day of Atonement, where only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And only one day a year would he go in there and he would make the sacrifice and atonement there on the mercy seat where he was making mediation between the people and God. And in fact, in the Old Covenant, it was really clear. If you or I were Israelites, the only access we would have had to God was through the priest and through the sacrifices that the priest offered. You and I would not be allowed to make a sacrifice. You remember, actually, King Saul, the first king. He took to himself 
And he decided to make a sacrifice because he didn't have a priest there, which in this case was Samuel. And what happened when he made a sacrifice? What did God tell him happened to Saul's kingdom? It's taken away. You've lost your kingdom. Because you are the king, you are not the priest. And you are not to act like the priest because you're the king. They're separate things. And so you must go through the priestly mediator. And notice there at the end of verse 25, the result of this is let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. The people were not allowed to approach God except through the ministry of the priest and ultimately the high priest. But once the sacrifice was offered, they then could approach God's throne with confidence because sacrifice had been offered. We see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 7, the other passage. Notice uh, it begins in verse 23. There's been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So he's saying specifically Jesus is our priest. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So notice, once again, the priest represents the people to God. And the writer to Hebrews in these chapters from uh, chapter 4 all the way really through chapter 10 is showing why the Old Testament priests were insufficient. And here he gives us one of the reasons. He says no matter how good they were, they died. And once they died, they could no longer represent you before God. But Jesus doesn't die, and so he is able to save us completely. He's able to bring us before God. He's able to utterly uh, save us, and he's able to do this because he always lives to intercede for the people. Okay, so one of the things to recognize here is the difference between prophets and priests, okay? A prophet stands, as it were, if we have the cross back here and it kind of represents God, the, the prophet stands with his back towards God and his face towards the people, and he speaks the word of God to the people. But the priest does the opposite. The priest has his back to the people and his face to God because he's representing the people to God. He's interceding for the people. And the writer to Hebrews says, because he intercedes for the people, the people are saved. And if you have a great high priest, he can save the people completely. Now again, I remind us why we needed all of this and why all this was there in the Old Testament was to show us that we need a priestly mediator because of our sin. This whole system wasn't set up because God is God and we're humans, because if you remember in the garden, was there any priest? No. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. There was no need for a priestly mediator because there was no sin. But once sin enters in, now there has to be a mediator. So notice in Hebrews 7, 27, we're reading about the, the ministry of Jesus and the other priests. We're told, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So notice the priest's job is to offer sacrifice for sin. This is how he ultimately mediates. There is a sacrificial offering. But notice there were, there's four huge differences between Jesus and these other priests. 
Number one, they have to offer their sacrifices day after day. And the writer to Hebrews makes a big deal that Jesus only offers a sacrifice once. Number two, that high priest had to go in and first offer a sacrifice for himself because he's got his own sin problem. And the writer to Hebrews says, but Jesus doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He doesn't have a sin problem. Uh, thirdly, then, you know, they would make a sacrifice for the people. But what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal. But Jesus doesn't sacrifice an animal. He sacrifices himself. And then it's not actually in this, but there's another difference. Those priests, because they keep coming back day after day after day, they always stand before the Lord. We're told in Hebrews a couple of times that when Jesus finishes, he sits. He sits on the throne because he's actually prophet, priest, and king. But the sitting down means it's done. It is finished. It doesn't have to be offered again. So sin, we're being told, requires a mediator. But old covenant priests fell short because of their own sin, because they died, because they had to keep offering the sacrifice over and over and over again. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, because they're offering animals, bulls and goats, which can never actually take care of sin. So in every possible way you look at it, they're necessary, but they fall short. And that's because they're pointing forward to Jesus. So that brings up the question. This is telling us we need this Redeemer and Mediator. And it's telling us that Old Testament priests were a picture of that. They were, they were explaining it to us, but they fell short. Which brings, therefore, the question to us, what are the requirements to be a Redeemer and a Mediator? What are the requirements? Well, this is what that catechism question we've got is getting at. And a lot of the verses, if you look it up uh, in the catechism, come out of the book of Hebrews. Because notice what we're told is what sort of redeemer and mediator is needed to bring us back to God. The first thing is one who is perfectly righteous. So this is the first problem that those Old Testament priests had. They were not perfectly righteous. Because as you remember, if we go back to the Old Testament, when I would bring an animal in, what was the first requirement for the animal? It had to be without fault. Because, see, one of the things that people would do is, well, if I'm going to sacrifice an animal, I'm going to wait until I have a three-legged calf born that's not going to make it anyway. I'll take that one in and sacrifice it. And God said, no, you can't bring me the blemished, the broken, the bad. You have to bring the best of what you have into me. A sacrifice has to be without fault. So they could not have any blemish in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And this is why the book of Hebrews stresses the sinlessness of Jesus. In our passage in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. We're going to see both of those points are essential. He had to be tempted. He had to be just like us, but he had to be without sin or else he cannot be the redeemer. So Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin because to be our high priest, our redeemer and our mediator, he had to be sinless, without blemish, without any spot, without any fault before him. Hebrews 7, the other text we're looking at, uses a little bit different language to make the same point. 
So notice starting in verse 26, such a high priest needs our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. All of these were terms in the Old Testament law that oftentimes referred to the animals, that they were holy, that they were pure, they were without spot. Here it's being referred to Jesus. It's speaking of it morally. And it says in that sense, he's set apart from sinners. As we're going to see in a minute, he's united with us in our humanity, but he's distinct from us in that we sin and he does not. So he has to be holy, blameless, pure, set apart from us. In other words, he has to be perfect. He has to be totally righteous. This is brought out again in verse 27, which we looked at a minute ago. The Old Testament priests, this is why they couldn't be our Redeemer and Mediator. The first thing they had to do was offer for their own sin. But we're told in verse 27, Jesus did not have to do this. He had no sin of his own to make atonement for. And then therefore he comes back in verse 28 and says that, notice, the law appoints high priests, men who are weak. But the oath, and he's speaking of the oath to Melchizedek, the priesthood that Jesus has, says that oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. And notice the contrast. They're weak, he's perfect. And what he's really speaking of there is not so much physical weakness, but moral weakness. They are weak. They sin. They are fallen. They are prone over and over and over again to give in to their temptations. He's not that in any of those ways. He is strong. He is perfect. He is able to resist temptation and to be utterly and truly uh, without sin. So that's the first aspect that the Redeemer has to be totally righteous. And we'll unpack that a little bit more in a couple weeks. Secondly, the Redeemer must be truly human and truly God. This was, again, Anselm's question. Why the God-man? So notice, we're saying he has to be truly human and truly God. And this is because if you think about it, what does a mediator do? See, if I'm... If Robin and I are having a dispute, and I say, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to solve the dispute. We're going to get a mediator to mediate between us. I'll be the mediator. What's the problem with that? Right. I can't represent both parties, right? We need somebody who can represent both parties. Well, here's the problem. If the problem is between God and man, who can represent both parties? Only one who is both God and man. There's no other way to have a mediator. Even just fully God can't represent us, but one who is just us can't represent God. So if you're going to have a mediator who can represent and mediate between God and humanity, you need one who is the God-man. And this is why Hebrews stresses both the deity and the humanity of Christ. It's explaining to us why the God-man. Why must we have this? So notice, for example, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, it stresses both aspects, the deity of Christ, but also the humanity. In verse 14, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So our high priest, yes, he's the Son of God. He's the eternal Son. He is fully divine. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Hebrews, 
verses 1 to 3 kind of lays out Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, but it lays him out in all of those as the divine son. Hey, we've had prophets, they've spoken to us, but God has now appointed his own son through whom he made the universe, who's the exact representation of his being. That son is the final word. He is the final prophet, the final priest, the final king. So the whole book of Hebrews is at pains to stress Jesus' deity. But notice here in the same passage in Hebrews 4, it also stresses his humanity. So we look down in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are. He's saying Jesus doesn't just, he's not just divine, he's human. And he doesn't just kind of look like us. It says if you've been tempted, he's been tempted. The very struggle that you and I have with sin, it was there, it confronted him at every time. He became fully and truly human. Okay? We'll, we'll cover this a little bit in the coming weeks. There was, there was an early heresy known as Gnosticism, and one group, group of them was known as the Docetus, from a Greek word that means appears. And they said, well, he looked like he was human. He appeared to be human, but he really wasn't because God can't come into contact with sinful humanity. See, the book of Hebrews says, if he's going to be your priest, if he's going to be your redeemer, if he's going to be your mediator, he had to know what it's like to be tempted. And he did. And see, God can't be tempted, but the God-man can be tempted because the God-man is truly human. Why the God-man? Because he has to be able to, to represent both God and us. He, he has to have the power to overcome the sin, but he has to be truly tempted by sin. Notice in Hebrews 7, we get another representation of both the deity and humanity of Christ. Uh, verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So notice again we get the reference to the Son, and it's being in contrast to these weak men, which is again speaking that Jesus is truly and fully God. But notice the phrase, he has been made perfect forever. Before the incarnation, when Jesus is the eternal Son of God, member of the Trinity, was he perfect? Yes. So how's he being made perfect? Because he's now the God-man. In his humanity, he's being made perfect. If you look at Hebrews 5, 8, 9, it says Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation. It's not speaking that his deity is becoming perfect. His deity already was perfect. But it's saying in our place as the second Adam, he has been made perfect. He has completed the test that Adam failed. And so here, again, it's telling us we need one who is truly God and truly man to represent us and to work salvation for us. And I want us to see one last little point in this. See, this is why animal sacrifices could never remove sin and had to be repeated over and over and over again. The writer to Hebrews is bringing all this up because he's showing the whole point of the Old Testament was to point forward to Jesus. It never had a point other than looking to him. So he tells us in Hebrews 7, 27, 
Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. Because how often were there sacrifices down at the temple? Every day. Time after time after time. And you see what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Um, if these worked, then why do I have to come back down tomorrow and do it again and do it again? and do it again. Obviously something's not quite right if I have to keep doing this over and over and over again. And so he's making a big point. This is a huge point in the book of Hebrews. They offered many times. Jesus offers once. But the second point uh, is that Jesus offered himself, notice told the end of verse 27, he sacrificed their, uh, for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So he's saying, do you understand that Jesus offered himself, not an animal? Now, of course, he was perfect. They were not. But what if he was perfect and offered a perfect animal? Would it have worked? And the writer to Hebrews is saying, no. It still wouldn't have worked. If it would have worked, it would have worked in the Old Covenant. But it didn't work because what was needed was a perfect sacrifice from the God man. So it's different that he only offers it once, but it's also different in what he offers. They offered bulls and goats. He offers himself. So as you continue through the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, they, the writer tells us animal sacrifices temporarily covered our sin, but they could never actually remove them. So in Hebrews 10, 1 to 4, we read, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you see what the writer is saying? He's saying, look, the point of sacrifice is removing my sin. But what's happening when you make me offer them day after day and year after year is they're not only not removing my sin, they're actually reminding me of my sin. I have to come back down again tomorrow and I have to come down the next day and I have to come back every year. The high priest has to do the same thing over and over again. It's actually reminding us of sin, not removing our sin. And the writer to Hebrews says, and here's why. Because, notice his word, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, the writer of Hebrews says, look, they were required by the old covenant, but only because they were a shadow. They were a picture. They temporarily kind of covered over the sins so that the people could go through their ritual worship, but they were being a picture of Jesus. But the writer is letting us know that, look, once you have one who is truly human and truly God, who is truly perfectly righteous, come, he's without sin, and he offers himself, sin is done away with. That is a true redeemer and a true mediator. So we're going to actually unpack these a little bit in coming weeks. There's a lot more that we can look at in each of these aspects. But this is answering the question of why the God-man? Why did God do this? Why, why do we celebrate Christmas every year? What's the point? Because the point is not 
gift giving. It's not that we like certain songs we sing, trees that we put pretty things on. The point is we needed a particular redeemer mediator, a perfectly righteous, truly human, truly God that would come and work salvation. And Christmas says he's come. That's what we celebrate every year. So let's go into applying the word and see what this means for us and we will come to the Lord's table. There's really just one question for us on this. And again, I want to encourage you, if you can, we've got the discussion guide and I'm pulling some of the things out, but if you look at the catechism, uh, just go to it on the website, there's a whole bunch of other questions, a whole bunch of other scriptures to kind of think about what this means uh, and we can do it each week but here's what i want us to focus on today do i see the importance of a redeemer mediator okay ultimately anselm wrote a whole bunch of stuff but the answer for why the god man is because we needed a redeemer mediator we needed one who would bear the wrath of god in our place we needed one who could you know, that our sin so violated God's honor, God's nature, God's character, and we needed somebody who could pay the price. That's the answer to his question. And so we need to ask ourselves that because here's a fact. Today, there are many people who would answer the question, why do we need a redeemer mediator? By saying we don't. We don't need a redeemer mediator. Sin's not that big a deal. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation says, I beg to differ. It's a much bigger deal than you've ever, ever realized. Okay? And actually Anselm in Curdeus Homo keeps coming back and saying that. You've not yet considered how egregious your sin is. He's having basically an imaginary argument with someone saying, I don't think it really required a God-man to do it. And Anselm keeps telling him, you haven't yet considered how deep your sin is. If you understand the nature of your sin, you understand the nature of the Redeemer and the Mediator. And if you're not thinking this was required, you've not understood what is happening here. This idea that we don't need a Redeemer Mediator is a deadly error. It is a horrible error. And it ultimately undermines why we would need salvation. Sin is not a small deal. In fact, it's such a big deal that only the perfectly righteous God-man can serve as the Redeemer and Mediator. No one else could accomplish what was required. And so this even answers the question, if, if you get in conversations with people, one of the complaints about Christianity today is it's so narrow, okay? It's so exclusive when you say only Jesus. And here's what I will say to them. Hey, have a shot. You try to be the Redeemer Mediator. Give it your best shot. You're not going to do it. You're going to fall short. You want to bring Muhammad forward? You want to bring Buddha forward? You want to bring any of them forward? Let them give it their best shot. Christianity is only narrow because only one person can actually do it. It's not that, oh, well, I won't even let anybody else try. Give it a shot. It will not work. 
The entire message of the book of Hebrews is even the high priest from Aaron and all the people who had the law and they had all that, none of them could do it. None of them could suffice. So Christianity is narrow only in the sense that there's a requirement and only one person actually meets the requirement. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is why Christmas is a big deal. And I remind you, you know, out of, this is out of Heart the Herald Angels Sing. But notice, uh, notice some of the theology that we just sang uh, recently. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Do you hear what, what Wesley worked there in the thing is? He's talking about the deity of Christ. He's talking about the humanity of Christ. He talks about the virgin birth. That There were actually people who claimed to be evangelicals a few years ago and said, is it necessary to believe in the virgin birth? Yes. Yes, it is. Because if he's not fully God, we're not saved. Okay, there have been people, the thing that amazes me is sometimes Christians today act like people haven't been asking these questions before. We've gotten really smart and we're thinking of these questions. They're in the New Testament. I mean, people also told Paul, does it really matter if Jesus was raised from the dead? And Paul says, yes, it absolutely matters whether he was raised from the dead. But see, today we want to pose it in a way that it sounds profound, supposedly. It's not profound. It was stupid when they asked Paul. And it's stupid today, okay? And it's not profound to say, well, I'm a Christian, you know, but I'm a thinking guy. Can there be a virgin birth? We're talking about a God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, okay? If you believe in that God, then yes, a virgin can conceive. It's not a statement that, you know, well, those people were kind of naive back then. They thought virgins could conceive. No, they realized where babies came from. They had all had the talk. They knew the birds and the bees. It's a statement. It's only claimed that ever happened once. Okay? This is why Wesley's bringing this in. All of these things hang together. The virgin birth, the full deity, the full humanity to Christ, his uh, sinlessness, they are not secondary. They are essential to the faith. And if you don't have those, you don't have Christianity. You don't have the gospel. And so these things that we keep repackaging the same errors over and over and over again. And the problem is I, I love that uh, J. Gresham Machen, who was a theologian about 100 years ago, he lived, and he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism because the idea at the time there was what was known as the, the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And it was over things like the virgin birth. Can there be miracles? Was Jesus actually raised from the dead? And Machen said, I just wish you guys would have the integrity to admit you're not a different form of Christianity. You're an entirely different faith. You're not preaching Christianity. This is not what Christians have ever believed. And Machen knew he had gone to Germany to go to seminary over there and almost lost his faith. 
He went through a crisis. He went through a dark night of the soul and came out and said, no, this is true. The faith once for all handed down is true. And if it is not, we are not saved. And if it is not, find something else to do with your Sunday mornings because we didn't need all of this. Okay? This is what is true for us. So for us, that's always, and what we're pressing when we're talking to our friends is, have we received the work of Jesus in our behalf? Have we responded? That's what is the ultimate question that we're talking about in all of this. I need a redeemer. I need a mediator. And I need one constantly. And thanks be to God, we have one. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who became human for us and for our salvation. So, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table of the Lord, and uh, this table, being the table of the Redeemer mediator. And I, as we do this, I want us to remind ourselves that through Jesus, we are the redeemed, the cleansed, the forgiven people of God. Through Jesus, we may boldly approach God's throne. I love that in Hebrews 4. It's not that when you've been cleansed by the work of a mediator, you kind of crawl in, you're, you're afraid. No, it says we can boldly come before the throne of grace because, see, lack of boldness when I understand who Jesus is isn't a statement about me and my sin. It's a statement about his lack of sufficiency. If I understand who Jesus is, I can come before the throne of God with boldness. Apart from the work of Christ, we have no right to this table. And in fact, the writer to Hebrews, if you look at Hebrews 13, says we, we have a table, an altar, in which we minister, that those who work at the Old Testament altar, they have no right to this at all. But we have a right, not because we're more holy, but because we have the true Redeemer mediator who is served in our place. And so all who confess Christ, who received him as the Redeemer and mediator, want to encourage us today to come and receive, receive grace and strength for our journey. Now what we're going to do, we're going to begin by confessing the faith together. So if we can stand up, and Danny's going to be putting up the words of the Apostles' Creed. And I want you to notice, you know, in this ancient creed that the church has handed down, there's three sections, but the central section, the longest one, is on Jesus, on the God-man, and what he's done for us. This is the faith that we confess. This is the faith that we celebrate every year at Christmas. So let's confess the faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. And I remind us, you know, in there it speaks of believing in the Holy Catholic Church, and I sometimes get asked this question. That, that word Catholic means universal. This means what we just confessed is what Christians at all times and places have confessed. They dressed differently than you and I. They spoke different languages. They sang different worship songs. They, they looked a little bit different in the way they did things. But you know what? They believed the same faith. They had the same Redeemer and Mediator. So if we confess that faith, I remind us of the words that we've been looking at this morning. This is our invitation. Since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith which we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's go ahead and uh, you can take back the seal for the bread. Father, you are holy, but we are sinful and unholy. And therefore, we need a mediator redeemer, a high priest to represent us before you. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus is that high priest, for he is the perfectly righteous God-man. He took our humanity to himself to live in our place. And as this bread was broken, so was his body broken for us. We approach you now in confidence and faith, trusting in his work in our place. Brothers and sisters, take and eat and receive the grace of God. Lord Jesus, you are our great high priest. You did not offer the blood of bulls and goats, but rather you offered yourself the sinless, spotless, holy, blameless, pure Lamb of God. And by your sacrifice of yourself, you have atoned for our sin and given us access to the throne of grace. We give you thanks for your blood, and we come boldly to this table through it to receive grace, and strength in our own hour of need.
Brothers and sisters, take and drink the cup of the Lord. Let's stand together and ask the Holy Spirit to seal and work all of us in our lives. Holy Spirit, you are the one who overshadowed the Virgin Mary so that she conceived and brought forth our Lord Jesus. And you are the one who anointed Jesus at his baptism so that he proclaimed good news and worked salvation for us. So come upon us now, for we are his people. Holy Spirit of God, fill us to overflowing. Convict us of our sin. Comfort us and guide us. Empower us to resist sin and obey God. Stir up your gifts within us so that we might serve others and fulfill the purposes of God in our day. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus, who is our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, and Mediator. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, receive the benediction. This is the final one, actually, in the Scriptures. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you as the people of God. Go forth redeemed, forgiven, and blessed, and spread the blessings of God to others in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.